Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director for Doc NYC. On this episode, I interview Joe Berlinger, who's been making documentaries for over 25 years. His latest film is called Intent to Destroy, Death, Denial, and Depiction. It's a multi-layered work looking at the legacy of the Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Empire. Scholar Peter Balakian gives this historical context. The coverage of the Armenian massacres during the World War I period was enormous. The New York Times alone ran 145 articles on the genocide just in 1915. In the decades since then, the history has been fiercely contested by the Turkish government. The United States as a Turkish ally has held back from using the word genocide. During George W. Bush's administration, John Marshall Evans was the U.S. ambassador to Armenia. He tells this story in the film. Six months into my assignment, I was invited back to the United States to talk to various centers of Armenian population. And in Watertown, Massachusetts, somebody asked me, why is it that I have no uncles or aunts and I don't know who my grandparents were? How can that be? Well, this put me into a terrible, terrible dilemma. Because after all, the U.S. ambassador is charged with carrying out the policy of his government. But the U.S. government, out of deference to our NATO ally, Turkey, had a, I wouldn't call it even a policy, it was a taboo, an utter and complete taboo on saying, or much less doing, anything about this historical event. Do I spin this question, or so evade the question, that it's deeply misleading? Or do I break the taboo, which I knew existed, and try to talk about it and deal with the consequences? And your response? Well, I, I said, yes, I believe it was a genocide. After I returned to Armenia, the first day I got back, there was a telegram from Condoleezza Rice on my desk. Two telegrams, in fact. One giving me the text of the apology that I would now proceed to issue and put on the website. And the other actually having me apologize to the State Department and explain my action. Intent to Destroy has a unique angle to explore this legacy. Joe follows the making of a Hollywood film called The Promise, directed by Terry George, who's best known for Hotel Rwanda. The Promise had a $100 million budget privately funded by a wealthy Armenian to tell a love story set against the tragic history in the spirit of Dr. Zhivago. Joe's documentary examines how history is told and is challenged. He sees a connection to the present. And to me, it's very relevant today. We live in this alternative facts, fake news, Trumpian era where, like, if you just deny it long enough, you know, there are a lot of people who just act like things aren't happening. We'll talk about Intent to Destroy later in the program. First, I asked Joe about the start of his career. In the 1980s, he had an idea to interview taxi cab drivers about their most outrageous stories. But he didn't act upon it until his first date with the woman who would become his wife 
Lauren. We actually met uh, on an elevator in 1989, uh, and it took me six months to call her, even though we exchanged numbers. We ended up going on this fantastic date at, to see Edie Brickell at Studio 54 when it became a concert venue. And it was like one of those magical first dates, and we've been together ever since. But one of the things I kept talking about um, on our date was, oh, yes, I'm, ma- I'm a filmmaker, and I'm making this film about New York City cab drivers, and, which wasn't true. It was in my head, and I <laughs> wanted to do it. But I just felt like, I guess, inadequate. So I had to brag and say I was making this film. And we really had a, a wonderful date. And I woke up the next day, and I said, oh, shit, I really like this girl. And I just lied and said, I'm making a film when I just have been thinking about it. And that's literally what spurred me to go become a filmmaker. So I called Lauren up and because she had said, oh, I want I want to help you. Can I help? I'll do casting with you. This sounds great. And I woke up the next day and she's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So we just decided to make the film. That's, that's how I actually got off my butt and became a <laughs> filmmaker because I lied to my, my, my then girlfriend. That first short was called Outrageous Taxi Stories. The editor was Bruce Sanofsky, who became Joe's longtime collaborator. Bruce died three years ago from diabetes-related complications at age 58. Joe and Bruce had their breakthrough in 1992 with the theatrical documentary Brothers Keeper about a murder trial in upstate New York. They followed with Paradise Lost, about three teenagers falsely convicted for murder in West Memphis, Arkansas, that became a trilogy of films. Along the way, their partnership split up with some sore feelings that Joe talks about later. But they reunited to collaborate on Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, about the heavy metal band going through group therapy. When Joe and Bruce first met, they were both working for Albert and David Maisels, the documentary pioneers behind classics like Salesman, Gimme Shelter, and Grey Gardens. Joe had a background at the advertising company Ogilvia Mather and came to Maisel's to help expand their ad business. When David Maisel's died in 1987, the company was in a state of transition. That's where our conversation picks up. At the Maisel Brothers, and maybe some people don't want me to say this, but at the Maisel Brothers, once David passed away, there was not a lot of filmmaking going on. There was a lot of commercial making and a lot of corporate filmmaking, and it was an active production company. But Bruce and I literally were lamenting the dearth of verite filmmaking. But we also, deeply inspired by Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line, not stylistically, because, you know, those handsome recreations and and Errol kind of pushing the form with recreations is not what we wanted to do. But sitting in a movie theater in 1988 at Lincoln Plaza Cinema was like this this transformational event for me because I, I was, you know, I'm a huge movie buff. I would always go to that cinema. I was living at the Upper West Side. But sitting in a movie theater and seeing the Miramax logo, which obviously has different meaning today, but <laughs> seeing a Miramax logo on a documentary being projected in a movie theater just, just struck me like a thunderbolt. So Bruce and I both wanted to do what the Maisels started off doing, which was this dream of making documentaries for the movie theaters, because, but in the 60s, the apparatus wasn't quite there. So Brothers Keeper was definitely about 
and I say this with all due humility and respect because it, I don't want it to sound highfalutin like we think we're, you know, we invented something, but, you know, we felt like we were standing on the shoulders of these great verite filmmakers who we revered and wanting to push the form a little bit, specifically for movie theaters. Brothers Keeper is about a 1990 court trial in upstate New York in the tiny town of Munsville. The Ward brothers were four illiterate dairy farmers between the ages of 59 and 71 who lived in subsistence conditions without heat or indoor plumbing. The police accused Delbert Ward of suffocating his brother William after decades of sharing the same bed. Good evening, everyone. A man accused of killing his brother out of mercy is out of jail tonight. As Christy Casciano tells us, an entire community stood behind the dairy farmer, and for Delbert Ward, that means freedom. The story of Delbert Ward starts here. Ward lived and farmed here with his three brothers for most of his life. But life for Delbert Ward changed on June 6th when his 64-year-old brother, William, died of suffocation. Today, a judge set bail for Delbert Ward, and Delbert's friends posted bail. After three weeks, Delbert Ward was released from jail. What do first? Going home, relax. Joe and Bruce followed the three-week trial of Delbert, which attracted national media attention over lurid details. When Brothers Keeper came out in 1992, it revitalized the practice of observational filmmaking but it also broke with certain traditions. People may forget this, and they may have modified their philosophy today, but direct cinema, and, and cin- which is the American cousin of the French cinema verite, and specifically the Maisel brothers, would tell you in their philosophy that there is no such thing as a director, that they are capturing unvarnished reality, objective reality, and where and the other thing they told you, which of course we all believe in, is that they had faith that you could follow a real story in the present tense, not knowing where it goes, and capture incredible drama that's equal to or better than any drama that a scripted film could provide. That latter part, I believe in wholeheartedly, and it's what spurred me to want to make Brothers Keeper in the way we wanted to make it. But where I differ, and where we differed, is that... I think all filmmaking is inherently subjective. We can talk about that in a whole other podcast. Um, And that there is a director and that no film is the objective reality of any situation. You know, Paradise Lost, the trials were six weeks long. The only objective reality version of Paradise Lost is to sit through six weeks of a trial. You're making a million subjective decisions. So if you take that philosophy and say, okay, all filmmaking is subjective, You know, there's certain things you can't do. You can't manipulate chronology so much. You can't put words into people's mouths. You can't fake things. But filmmaking is still, even documentary making, is very subjective. So what we were going for is not the literal truth of a situation, but the emotional truth. And so if you're going for the emotional truth of a situation, why can't all the tools of a narrative filmmaker, of a scripted filmmaker, with the exception of putting words into people's mouths, but... Why can't all the tools of the narrative filmmaker be available to the documentarian? Now, all of this and what I'm about to say just sounds so commonplace today that younger filmmakers may say, well, duh, that's what every documentary is. Mm -hmm. But back then, doing things like we did in Brothers Keeper, I think were 
rather groundbreaking. Putting in an original music score throughout the entire film, this fiddle music by Jay Unger and Molly Mason, you know, to enhance the mood. Um, picking a subject that had natural dramatic structure, a murder trial, which has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Um, enhancing that dramatic structure, selectively withholding information until the right dramatic moment is not journalistic, but it's great storytelling. The film had an evocative opening title sequence. Again, today, that opening title sequence to Brothers Keeper would be considered tame by today's standards, but it was new back then. And the biggest thing is embracing ambiguity, which of course is a Maisel's and Verite tradition. Embracing ambiguity, raising questions that you don't necessarily answer. A film isn't about some specific social issue, it's much more of a human character portrait. So what I think, um, and in fact, the vanguard of documentarians back then when Brothers Keeper first came out actually criticized Brothers Keeper. Like, you can't have an original music score because that's emotional manipulation. That's not truthful. Opening title sequence? What, you know, where's the journalism? I mean, these are things we... <laughs> Do you we, still the, remember the specific pushback you got? Oh, yeah. I mean, the film went to Sundance, got tremendous reviews. Um, I got won the audience award. No distributor wanted to take it because I didn't think there was a market for crusty old farm brothers who slept in the same bed together. Um, and I remember hearing from certain documentarians that, um, you know, uh, that the film isn't really a documentary, which kind of blows me away considering how it's viewed today. During the making of Brothers Keeper, Joe had another critical moment when his wife Lauren was decisive. We, we were engaged. Brothers Keeper was shot. But we hadn't, you know, as I was alluding to before, when you shoot um, on film back then, it's about $400 for every 16 millimeter camera roll, which lasts about 11 minutes, 10 and a half minutes. By the time you buy the film, put it in your camera and shoot it, and then you expose it at the lab, and then you take your quarter-inch Nagra tape, which the sound was on the Nagra, the separate element, and then you transfer that to 16-millimeter mag track, and then you are sitting down a week later at your Steenbeck with tr soundtrack and picture sunk up to just watch 10 minutes of footage. It costs you 400 bucks of dailies. Today, you shoot on a card, and there's no cost to the actual origination medium. So we had, sh and we also um, had shot a lot of what's called recans and short ends. So like if you, on a TV commercial or another shoot, because you're loading film into a magazine in advance of needing it, sometimes when a shoot ends, there's short pieces of film left or recanned film that they put back in the can and you can buy it for 10 cents on the dollar because there's a chance the assistant camera person, when he's in the bag loading the magazine, has fogged the film. So you don't even know if you actually have film that's good. So Brothers Keeper was shot primarily with, so it's a miracle that film ever got done. It was primarily shot with recans and short ends that all were sitting in my refrigerator. And shortly before we were getting married, I opened my refrigerator door. Lauren and I were living together. And it was not a loaded question because I was looking forward to my honeymoon and I was looking forward to being a filmmaker, I mean, uh, with equal, <laughs> equal joy. And I said to Lauren, um, all right, and he, I even said, this is not a loaded question, Lauren, but I have about 50 rolls of film in the refrigerator, as you see. I, we, have, we haven't been able to afford to process it. And I, we have just enough money to either go on a honeymoon or to process our footage. 
and without skipping a beat. And again, it was not a loaded question. It wasn't even delivered in a loaded way because I really was conflicted. And without skipping a beat, Lauren said, well, we can always have a honeymoon, but you can never have your first, you know, there's only one time for your first film, so let's process the footage. So we processed it. And luckily, most of the footage was good, and we had a couple of problems, but most of it was good and ended up in the movie, and we went on a honeymoon a couple of years later. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you about your partnership with Bruce Anofsky. What was it about the, you know, the chemistry between the two of you that, that worked? Um, you know, Bruce was, uh, an amazingly, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, if you've known him for a long time, you will understand this. Sadly, he was ill for quite a bit of time. So he was not, he was not himself for the last 10 years of his life. But when I first met Bruce, he was an incredibly charming and charismatic guy. Um, and I was a little more introverted and, you know, he, he wore his heart on his sleeve, and I was much more c- cerebral, I guess you would say. We each had complementary skills, and we yeah. had different co- personalities. And I don't think either one of us could have made Brothers Keeper or Paradise Lost without the other. Um, you know, it's hard to say what a, what two different people do, but if I had to reduce it to like some, I don't want to say cliches, but to reduce it to utter simplicity, which doesn't really cover how two people can form a bond... Um, you know, I would say that he was, um, well, on a basic level, we were making a film in an era where there was no digital, uh, where making movies, cutting on a steam back, getting product out of a lab where there was a certain level of education you needed on the technical side of filmmaking. And Bruce, as an editor, a film editor who grew up cutting on celluloid, um, had that technical knowledge. Mm. Um, I was, you know, was, still am, a pretty good producer, idea guy, marketing guy, organized guy. The making of a film is a business. Mm -hmm. Every film is a business. And the sooner that young filmmakers realize that it's a business and you got to treat it as a business and you got to have great organizational skills, Bruce You know, I didn't have the technical skills to make a film that Bruce imparted to me. And Bruce didn't have those kind of business organizational skills that, you know. And then on a creative level, we just had kind of a a shared creative spirit. Um, You know, I think I'm much more of a detail-oriented guy. And sometimes I get lost in the details. He was much more of a, you know, big picture guy. And, uh, you know, I think some of the more intellectual, and I don't say this as a disservice to him and... And when I say what he was good at, it's not a disservice to me, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm more of a quote-unquote intellectual guy, and some of that intellectual stuff is in, in the films, but left to my own devices. Maybe sometimes the, the films are too intellectuals mm-hmm. and have no heart, mm-hmm. and Bruce has a lot of, had, sadly, had a lot of heart. And so like, I, think, I think Brothers Keeper is an, in, you know, is an intellectually rich film with a lot of emotion, and I think the two of us together kind of brought that. After Paradise Lost, Joe and Bruce had broken up their partnership. Joe directed on the dramatic TV series Homicide and the ill-fated Blair Witch 2. Joe and Bruce came together again for the film Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, that captures the heavy metal band at a crossroads. Lead singer James Hetfield and drummer Lars Ulrich had been playing together for nearly 20 years when tensions between them threatened the band's future. They called in a therapist to help them work through differences 
in sessions that are captured on film. Here's Hetfield describing his frustrations to the therapist and bandmates. That's part of this, all of this, <laughs> the bigness of Metallica, and I'm kind of tired of it. You might look at it as a friend. To me, it, it, it's been a beast, and it's sucked a lot of me into it. <clears throat> you were maybe the keeper of the beast at one point, you know, because you were the champion of, of that fifth, that entity. And of course, you got to just find the right balance between what everybody's personal needs are. But if Metallica collectively decides to do this, then I think Metallica can make it happen. I don't know, that scares me again. Metallica is three individuals, and three individuals have to decide if it's good to do. But I still think that, that the priority is the collective until all the people involved in the collective say that the priority is the individual. And so far, you're the only one that said the priority is the individual. I haven't said that. Joe explains how the band's story had similarities to his relationship with Bruce. But he and I had been, had broken up because the partnership issue was tough. Um, two guys, each doing the same thing. You know, we both produced, directed, and edited together, and that worked beautifully on the first film. Then the second film, it started to show some cracks related to ego, frankly, you know, and then when you're young and having success, you know, you got these ego issues. Again, it's why I admire Rachel and Heidi for like continuing to do their thing. It's hard to have a filmmaking partner. Did it come down more to creative stuff or to business stuff? Um, I think it came down to, um, you know, at the time, the business was not as robust as it is now. So like two filmmakers... Uh, two directors on one job. Yes. Two it just, it was a business. They didn't issue. necessarily give you two salaries. Exactly. For, you know. So it was like two, like, so I kept pushing us to wanting, let, you know, let's have a company, but you do your thing and I do my thing. Yeah. And that wasn't quite, it, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, it's, it's an interesting conversation, but you know, in, out of, out of respect for Bruce, he was an amazing human being. We had a great partnership. Neither one of us would have made those first two films without the other. And, 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 you know, as I was saying, the Metallica film was start, was really just kind of an assignment, a favor to Lars. And we, Bruce and I had not been kind of speaking and we'd been separated for about two years. And when I arrived in San Francisco to do this kind of B-roll, basically, which is all they wanted to do, Lars said, oh, I, sure, I forgot to, I forgot you were coming. We've The band is falling apart. We've hired the therapist. And so I just kind of pushed my way into that room. <laughs> and when I realized in that first, that first day of shooting... Um, we were in the four seasons and, and somehow I had talked them into allowing us to film their first therapy session. And I saw James and Lars going at each other. And here there were these two guys, very different people like Bruce and I having this existential creative crisis and trying to work through their issues. Like I, it brought tears to my eyes because I felt like I had not been a good friend to Bruce and how I went off to do homicide and, and wanting to do my own thing, and maybe I didn't take him into consideration. And so I invited Bruce to be part of the Metallica film, and that ended up, his 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 participation made it a better film, without question. Um, and we used those therapy sessions literally to work on our own issues. After, after a shoot, day, we'd go back to the hotel room and talk about our own issues. And our, the biggest issue was that we were, I mean, to put it bluntly, 
the biggest issue for me and what forced me to want to not be in a, rela- a filmmaking relationship is that we were joint. We did such a great job of marketing, uh, not just marketing. The films had an impact. You know, Brothers Keeper and Paradise Lost were such early successes that people were coming to the both of us for more films. And I just selfishly, I felt like. You know, I don't want to be joined at the hip at someone. I don't want to be yeah. hired only if the two of us are hired because at the time it was a very different business. You got a limited budget. And and so I realized I, while I was listening to Lars and James duke it out in these therapy th- sessions, I realized that I had not been a good friend. And so I invited Bruce in. We repaired our friendship. And then, then we had a great understanding because by then we were, you know, I had joined Radical I brought Bruce to Radical, and then we had what was a much healthier relationship. We were each free to do our own thing. He did many things without me. I did many things without him. In fact, most of my stuff from that point on were not with him. There are certain things we did together, and that was a healthy relationship. And it took the Metallica film to make that happen. Um, and so, and that Metallica film was better for Bruce's participation. And in fact, as much as I am proud of many things I've done over the years, the, the, the films that people remember me by, the films that have had the biggest impact on the business, you know, for whatever, in terms of influencing other filmmakers or whatever, the films that, you know, most people know are Brothers Keeper, Paradise Lost One, which is the best of the three, and the Metallica film. And those are the films that two of us came together and made. We'll be back with more from Joe Berlinger discussing his new film, Intent to Destroy, after the break. If you're in New York City, look out for our Stranger Than Fiction series. Each Tuesday, we show a documentary followed by a conversation with the filmmaker at the IFC Center. On May 15th, join us for The Gospel According to Andre, about the Vogue writer Andre Leon Talley. And on May 22nd, we'll preview the new series, The Fourth Estate, that follows the New York Times reporters who cover Trump. The Stranger Than Fiction spring season runs through June 5th. Visit the Pure Nonfiction website for details. Today, Joe Berlinger has a prolific career as a solo director. He covered an environmental lawsuit against an oil company in the film Crude. He visited South Africa with Paul Simon for Under African Skies. And he went behind the scenes with life coach Tony Robbins in I Am Not Your Guru. Joe likes to follow a story as it's happening. So when he was first approached to make a film about the Armenian genocide that took place during World War I, he needed a contemporary hook. He found it when he learned that Terry George was directing The Promise, a $100 million epic starring Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale. In the documentary, Terry George describes the challenge of turning history into a fiction film. For many people in the world, this will be their only encounter or reference for the Armenian Genocide, just in the same way that Schindler's List was for the Holocaust and the killing fields for Cambodia and Hotel Rwanda for Rwanda. So I want to show the full range of the atrocity that took place, but at the same time I want to keep it within the context of 
What's the impact on the participants, the characters themselves, and let the audience feel the horror of it through them? That's the, the balance, the, the tightrope that I walk. Joe explains how the promise triggered him to make intent to destroy. So that's when my light bulb went off and I said, well, look, I can finally add something to the discussion because I don't really want to make a film about the genocide itself. Of course, the genocide needs to be integrated into the film. But what's more interesting to me is the mechanism of denial. How genocide, because it's related to Holocaust denial, how does denial work? And this is entire, there's an incredible history of Hollywood bowing to Turkish pressure to not tell stories of the Armenian genocide. And there's a couple of great, you know, there was this great book, 40 Days of Musada, which is about a moment of resistance that in 1935, MGM was starting to turn into a movie. And the Turkish uh, government, you know... This was a novel by Franz Werfel. Franz Werfel, yeah. Uh, that was a best-selling novel yeah. at the time. And, and then the 1930s, MGM was, options it. And, and was about to turn it into a movie. And uh, uh, the Turkish government lobbied our State Department to literally get the production shut down successfully. And, and, so well, that- and, and there's a detail of this that really stood out to me is that one of the lobbyists is the father of Ahmet Ertegun, the famous Atlantic Records producer, exactly. produced Aretha Franklin and yeah. all untold number of yeah. Great artist. Yeah, and so that was the first. So you, Ahmet Ertegun's father was the ambassador. Ambassador, ambassador uh, Ertegun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 lobbied the State Department to lobby Hollywood to shut it down. And so, you know, there's never been the Armenian Schindler's List, and you know, the the elimination of 1.5 Christian Armenians in a very short period of time, the first ethnic cleansing really of the 20th century. You know, it should be the subject of movie making, and it's been perpetually batted away by Hollywood. So, so, so now you're going to follow. So, so yeah. So my thought was, okay, I'm going to make a film about denial. I'm going to embed in this historic epic production that's being paid for by an Armenian named Kirk Kikorian, a, a billionaire, uh, and I'm going to use the making of the film as uh, the present tense thread to tell the history, not just of the genocide, but also of denial and take us up to the present day. And I thought it was it'd be an interesting way to tell the story. The Promise may be the biggest budget version of this story, but it wasn't the first fiction film to examine the legacy of the Armenian genocide. One precedent was Adam Agoyan's film Ararat. Joe interviews Agoyan in Intent to Destroy. I felt that my film Ararat could be made in Canada and that we wouldn't have resistance, but we did. In fact, there was a very pointed meeting right before production where uh, a representative of the the Turkish community in Canada wanted a meeting with the producer, Robert Lantosh, and myself and my wife, Arsene Kanjan. And we all got together in this conference room and he basically made the most extraordinary threat, which was that if if we made the film, he said he couldn't guarantee that the Armenian community in Turkey uh, wouldn't feel the effects of it. And our jaws just dropped, and we all looked at each other and went, is that a threat? I mean, that just seemed, it seemed so egregious that this person would, would ask for this meeting and then come up with this threat, you know? And, and uh, Robert, you know, responded and said, well, you know, there's nothing that you can do to stop this film from being made. It's, it's, it's being made. We're, 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 we're going ahead with this. Adam Agoyan talks about the pressure he got. And uh, in your film, there's many, many cases of uh, 
pressure and pushback that people have gotten uh, when they tried to talk about an Armenian genocide. Did you experience that kind of pushback yourself on, on this film? Interestingly, I, I sought out uh, the Turks. Um, I spoke to, uh, we, we, you know, just like in Crude, I wanted Chevron in the movie. I believe you want the other, you want to embrace the other side. And in fact, you, as you see in the film, we put in some of the denier scholars to give their side of history because the only way you can understand, um, the only way you can understand denial is to understand what is said, how it's said, and what the mechanism is. So I felt you had to hear their point of view. Although many of my Armenian friends were horrified that I put the, de the deniers in the film, mm. um, to which my response is, you know, if you're going to make a film, because they said, would you ever put in Holocaust deniers in a Holocaust film? And my point is, um, if I was making a film about the Holocaust itself, I wouldn't put in Holocaust deniers. But if I was making a film about Holocaust denial, of course, you have to put in the deniers. And that's what Intent to Destroy is about. Um, but with regard to getting pushback myself, surprisingly, no. And that maybe that says something. And in fact, I encouraged Turkish officials to be in the film. I reached out to the UN ambassador, the U.S. ambassador, the consular general in L.A., uh, uh, New York. And there was, you know, the, the, the deputy consul in New York actually engaged me in conversation. I went in to meet her a few times. I told her what my point of view was, that I wanted their point of view. And they equivocated for months and never committed to an interview. But eventually, right towards the end of production, the most that they would do is they were willing to uh, meet with me in Ankara. I had to go to Ankara to meet with Turkish officials. Uh, that was the invitation. I, I, was, I said, well, can I film it? No. Can I bring a recording device? No. We just want to educate you. So the idea that I would, and the, right, that was right around the time there was some bombings in Ankara and, you know, right. Erdogan was sweeping up journalists. So I decided that it probably was not a good idea to take a field trip to Ankara yeah. to meet with unnamed officials. They wouldn't tell me who they were. Uh, and uh, where I wasn't even allowed to record with audio the conversations we were having. While The Promise was in production, Turkish backers made a competing film called The Ottoman Lieutenant, another love story with a different take on the history. Ultimately, neither film made much headway at the box office. I asked Joe for his take on why The Promise didn't fulfill its potential. You know, I, I do think... Uh, there was a lot of people on set and it was a big crew and it, it made me realize that sometimes less is more. And, hmm. you know, uh, I think Terry could have benefited from actually having less resources. He probably, hmm. I think, would have made a much more uh, nimble film if he had actually less, you know, uh, Hotel Rwanda was a six or seven million dollar budget and that film is brilliant. Um, and I think maybe the idea uh, that the producers had of a, a really big budget film with every resource imaginable might not always be the best thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, sometimes too much money and too many resources gets in the way of spontaneity. And today, cinema needs to feel authentic. And I think sometimes. Uh, well, I think in this instance, I think if he had if he had less tools, he might have made a better film. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a constant tension that's coming up in the film, and it's one of the more, most fascinating aspects of watching it to me, which is the trade-offs that are being made to take this troubled history and put them on the big screen. So one trade-off is, you know, how 
gruesome you can be you, you know like what are you actually going to show in exactly terms of, especially uh, if you want to make a pg-13 movie which was their goal right uh, you know another trade-off would be you know foregrounding the love story uh and, and so on and and these are you know it's it's a it's a fair debate to say hey you need to make certain compromises to the history in order to put it over and reach a wider audience but then like how far do you do those compromises go before it, it doesn't really matter uh, what you're putting across? Uh, and I and I wonder if you know this experience caused you to reflect on on those trade offs. Um, it's very interesting to me, like how we consume our history and the fact that everyone's view of the Holocaust now comes from Schindler's List, which was an incredible film, um, and that. There's these competing movies out, you know, the Turkish version of it, you know, the Ottoman Lieutenant and the Promise and how everything's competing, uh, you know, for people's attention. Um, and so, the you know, the interesting from, thing for me coming from the documentary tradition is there's nothing like reality. Joe has kept a hectic schedule in the last year. He led the productions of three true crime series, including Cold-Blooded, that revisits the story of Truman Capote's book In Cold Blood. He's now finishing a fiction work and a documentary on the same topic about serial killer Ted Bundy. I wonder now in, in your career, you, you seem to have a lot of projects going all at once. Um, and, you know, where you think you are now in your career and what you're trying to achieve? Um, who the hell knows, man? That's a good question. But, uh, you know, I mean, luckily we're in a great, we're in a great period for, uh, for this craft. On the one hand, I think it's harder and harder for a, a first time great film to break through because there's just so much content. But on the other hand, if you're not worried about breaking through and becoming the next big filmmaker or whatever, and you're just interested in telling great stories, um, I think it's never been a better time. There's, you know, obviously Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, digital platforms, uh, you know, scripted series, like only in the last couple of years has it been, you know, this abundance of scripted series where sometimes a story is better suited for six hours than for a 90 minute or two hour feature doc. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really galvanized and excited about all the opportunities there are uh, in the different forms and the different platforms. And, you know, when we made Brothers Keeper, as I said, I mean, if HBO or, or PBS didn't take your documentary, your documentary wasn't being seen. There was no theatrical tradition of documentaries. Uh, to make a documentary back then, you, if you're shooting on film, was just, you know, we went deeply into debt to make the film. Not that people aren't going into debt now to make a film, but the process has become much more democratized. So it's an exciting time to uh, be a filmmaker, although I would say the downside or the corollary is there's never been more filmmakers. My God, there's like so much, so many people competing for the same stories that just wasn't even imaginable when I first started. But generally speaking, documentary has moved to the center of the entertainment business on a certain level and specifically in television. It's, it's, you know, just never been more popular as a result for me, you know, my career has kind of shifted and, and I've done a, you know, a really interesting juggle over the last couple of years of literally doing multiple series at the same time. There's a bunch of us 
who are doing that, like Alex Gibney, Morgan Spurlock, you know, a bunch of us, Heidi and Rachel, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping a whole bunch of names, so I apologize. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are able to juggle a bunch of stuff at the same time. The downside to that and where I would like my career to go, to answer your question, is I just came off of doing a scripted film, the Extremely Wicked, which is about Ted Bundy and his relationship with his girlfriend, played by Lily Collins, which is coming out later this year, I hope. I'm sure it will. Um, but that was an amazing experience because for the first time since maybe Paradise Lost, I was doing one thing only. Because when you do a narrative film, like there's just, you, that's all you can do. And so from around Thanksgiving until, you know, the end of February, all I did was one thing. Everyone in my life knew on other projects, I can't talk to you. And I found my, it was magical to just dive into one thing and do one thing only for 16 or 17 hours a day. Um, now that I'm back, I'm back to a juggle. Before that, for the last couple of years, you know, I, last year I, did, I had four unscripted series in production, three of which aired, plus a feature doc. Uh, that takes a different part of your brain to be able to manage, you know, to, to come in at the right moment and do what you're supposed to do as a director and producer. Because the basic question is, like, is there a quantity versus quality? Yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I think what I would like to do for the rest of my career is to not juggle so many different things at once. I rediscovered the joy of doing one thing at a time. I mean, that's how, you know, when Bruce and I made Brothers Keeper, that's all we did for two years. When Bruce and I made Paradise Lost, that's all we did for two years. Those, you know, those days seem like magic compared to like the, the you know, it's a business. Well, for, uh, for many filmmakers, it becomes financially uh, problematic to uh, to only be focused on one thing. Yeah, and, you know you've got kids in college. Exactly. And so yeah, exactly. So so I I greatly enjoyed doing one thing, and I think that's kind of where my career is headed. I'm I I I loved doing the narrative film, but I love documentary. So I just you know I hope that somehow I can keep doing this for another twenty years and. Uh, you know, not have such an insane juggle that has characterized the, the last probably decade or so. But it's been fun. I want to thank Joe Berlinger for speaking with me. His new film, Intent to Destroy, Death, Denial, and Depiction, is playing on stars. His films with Brusinovsky, Brothers Keeper, and Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, are available on Netflix. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts Social Documentary Program. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter, at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.